here today with Yesha Yadav from Vanderbilt, and we are um, excited to talk to Yesha for so many different reasons. Um, the the maybe the primary reason having to do with a embarrassing gap in my and I think I can speak for me too in me too's knowledge about treasury markets. Um, we happily go through life thinking of treasury markets as these simple, vanilla, risk-free markets that nobody really needs to worry about. And that, that assumption has given us cover basically for not understanding how the markets work very well at all. And yes, we notice when treasury markets seize up as they did um, in March, uh, of um, the prior year, but we, you know, we kind of think of these as the safe, easy, risk-free markets that we don't need to worry about. And Yesha, helpfully, when when we're willing to listen, and always when we read her work, Yesha reveals the seedy underbelly of the treasury markets to us and, and helps point out uh, some of the many gaps in our knowledge. And so we're, we're super thrilled to talk to Yesha about the treasury markets. And while we have her here about financial regulation and financial contracts generally, since she knows as much about those, those topics as anyone we know. So Yesha, thanks, thanks so much for joining us. Mark and Mitu, thank you so very much for having me today. Um, it's so um, exciting and, uh, to, for me to be here today. It's such a privilege. Um, more than anything, because Mark and Mitu, uh, both of your work has been so influential um, in what I've done. So it really is an honor uh, to get to be with you all here today. Well, thank you. You're, it's, um, it's more the honor for us, but we are we're thrilled to have you. And I hope um, you'll forgive us for starting with some fairly straightforward but simplistic questions. Many, I think, of our listeners will benefit from them, but I know that we will benefit from them. So I'm hoping you can just start out by telling us why it might be wrong or at least incomplete to think of treasury markets as these simple, vanilla, risk-free markets. Wonderful. Um, and I'm so delighted uh, that you asked that question, Mark. Um, as you said, when we think about the treasury markets, we're always just thinking about this unshakable, this completely uh, perfectly safe market that is designed to protect us when every other market is collapsing. This is the one asset, the one risk-free asset that is anchoring global financial stability on the most systemic scale possible. So um, this is the market that we simply assume is the market that's gonna work. Um, but what we do when we make this assumption is basically conflate a whole bunch of concepts, right? Which is um, we confuse the asset, which is the treasury with the market in which the treasury is trading. Um, the treasury as the asset, as the government bond that the, that the US government is, is, is promising to, to, to pay, that asset is by all intents and purposes risk-free, right? Um, the US will pay its debt, right? The US, unless we have some kind of apocalyptic situation, which obviously having been through 2020, we certainly can have, right? But unless we are in that kind of apocalypse, the US will pay its debt. That asset is risk-free. But the market in which that asset trades is by no means risk-free, right? Just like any other market, 
that uh, the, the treasury market where we have the trading um, of the US treasuries with investors, with traders and others, that market comprises risks, just like any other uh, big uh, bustling, crazy market. Now, the, the US treasury, I think it's worth highlighting is one of the most important one of, if not the most important asset in global financial regulation, right? For investors, it is a critical yeah, sure. part. Um, might, might I please um, interrupt it. you? Because I, I, before you go further, I'm, I, I just want to make sure I understand uh, this market risk versus instrument risk and why uh, we should pay attention to the treasury markets. Uh, as, as I see it, the description that you gave us of what is a risk-free asset that you know the U.S. will pay it if it can—I mean that's true of every government. They'll, I mean we know from the history of sovereign debt, governments will pay if they can. They don't want to default. So it's true of the German Bund. It's true of the Austrian uh, Treasury Security. I mean it's even true of El Salvador's sovereign debt. But that's just normal, ordinary risk. And the fact that it's trading in a market, uh, so what? And so what if some people think that it's risk-free? That doesn't make it risk-free. I mean, the U.S. has defaulted. And, you know, we had, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't pay any attention to con law, but, and, no, and I think okay. very few people should, but we had some stuff about like constitutional limits and people were jumping up and down about, you know, oh, we might default on the treasury debt. And then of course we didn't default uh, because it was solved. And our con law colleagues spent a lot of time writing articles that nobody should read, but uh, <laughs> uh, they, they did do that. I, I just, I don't get, um, why, why there's so much risk in the market. Uh, I mean, and then the March 2020 uh, set of events that Mark brought up, uh, I mean, we had a sudden stop in the entire global system. It wasn't anything special about treasury markets, best I can tell. So wh why, why, why are you saying that they are risk-free when they, these debts give no protections and the U.S. could just stop paying them? And Donald Trump, uh, the great leader, certainly uh, suggested this before he became president. And what does it mean to add a market and then say, oh, there's risk in it? Yeah, there's Sorry so much. Sorry for long-winded. No, there's so, much, there's so much in this question, me too, and I'm really glad you brought that up. And I mean, you know, maybe I was a little facile by saying that the U.S. will always pay debt. And of course, a situation in which um, we won't and that we'll default and then this asset is therefore not completely risk free from the default side. Um, the, the reason I've been facile is, is simply because of the, 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 the standard sort of economic account here is that the uh, political and economic power of the U.S. means that it's much, much, much better place than, say, El Salvador or Argentina or others uh, to be able to make good on its debts. Right. The simple assumption here is that we are just uh, we're just that good and we are just that strong and we have those resources that will mean that we will come through when 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 uh, when we have to in order to to, to pay on this instrument. Now, of course, uh, that is a theory. Right. Um, as you said, there are CDSs that trade on U.S. debt. There has been much made of the fact that we can, in fact, 
uh, default. Um, and furthermore, we've had all of these wranglings about debt ceilings, as you as you point out, that have put into question the fact that our rating at one point certainly fell below uh, AAA. So um, it's certainly not taken for granted, and I was maybe just too simplistic about that. But the general feeling is that if, if the U.S. is not paying its debt, there is something deeply wrong with the world at that point. So, um, but you know, why? So, but, but why? But, like that's supposed to be how debt works. That if you can't pay it, then that's normal. That's what's wrong with that. You, you know, it 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 the, the question of why. Um, you know, I think just comes down to convention. I think the question of why, again, comes down to assumption and maybe there's just nothing underneath it. Um, and I would like to, to, to point out and highlight the work of our much beloved and amazing colleagues, um, Anna Gelpert and Eric Garding, um, that point to exactly this risk, the fact that the constructs of risk-free assets is ultimately uh, is ultimately a mirage that is created through our legal and um, economic assumptions about what the asset is likely to do. Um, and ultimately, those assumptions can fall by the wayside. There may be nothing there. Um, I'm simply just pointing out the, the, the conventional wisdom. And if we do really probe and interrogate it, I think you're absolutely right. We can default if we want to. There will be consequences. We don't like those consequences, so hopefully we won't. Um, and the legal construction of this asset um, as this bond that is supposed to pay, this legal construction it is what essentially um, essentially uh, populates and reinforces the view that we have an asset that is supposed to be the asset that is least likely to default in the entire globe. Of course it can, but it's the least likely to. So can we, um, I feel like we may have um, steered onto um, this question of what it means to say that treasuries are risk-free um, without giving you a chance to, to tell us the separate risks that are introduced by market structure in issues of market structure. So can we, um, can we meaning me and me too, give you a moment or <laughs> <laughs> to, to, to fill us in on that aspect of it, because that part, frankly, is one that I don't understand especially well. Yeah, I don't I, understand either. I think Mark was basically <laughs> saying that I needed to stop interrupting, which is but, but no, please. I was saying this that, and it didn't, it didn't of, work. No, please interrupt. Please say whatever you know. Please interrupt. I I, I love this conversation. Um, you know, the, the, the market risk is so important here because one of the key aspects of treasuries, which I think differentiates them from a whole bunch of other sovereign bonds, and Mitu is the, the global um, expert, Mark, uh, you, are, you are the global expert on this. So I, you know, I will not, I will defer to your expertise on these. Um, but the general assumption here is that treasuries are amongst the most liquid instruments anywhere that are trading. And what that means essentially is that Investors and others are able to buy and sell treasuries whenever they want, um, very cheaply, um, and they can do so without affecting the prevailing market price of treasuries, right? So this market is liquid. It is supposed to provide investors with a guarantee that they can come into this market and buy and sell it so they can get these gorgeous treasuries to keep or they can sell these treasuries in order to raise cash. And that is an essential part 
of the treasury's protective function. The idea here that we can extract value from them that is stable and at a time and on, on conditions that are completely predictable and reliable. That liquidity is where the market comes into play. And the, the treasury market is ultra weird. It has been ultra weird. The secondary market for treasuries is divided into two parts. It's a one part market where investors are trading with these dealers, these uh, big banks that uh, are intermediating the flow and supply and demand of treasuries with investors. So they trade with investors across the world, hedge funds, countries, you and I, if we want. Um, and there's a second part of this market in which the dealers, the banks and others are trading with each other. Historically, this market has been very, very boring. Um, they have traded using telephones and faxes, pretty slow. Um, this has not been a market in which we paid a whole bunch of attention to the mechanics because they're so freaking boring. But over the last 10 years, just like the entire securities market, treasuries have also become automated. So today, um, treasuries trading in the dealer to dealer market is done entirely through algorithms, most of them high frequency trading algorithms. Um, and so what has that has done is bring enormous amounts of risks that we know exist because of HFT and algorithmic and automated trading and high-speed trading and interconnections, bring all of those risks into treasuries um, and we have to deal with those risks, right? So those operational risks that Me Too was highlighting in his question about the treasuries market essentially stopping in March last year. That happened because a bunch of dealers, both high frequency traders and bank dealers stepped away and disappeared. They didn't wanna trade with investors and others anymore. It's too risky, it was too bothersome, it was too terrible. Now, the reason why that's a, uh, uh, that's why, the reason why that's a complete cluster for the treasuries market is because the treasuries market is supposed to keep trading when every other market is not doing so, right? When every other market is collapsing, the treasuries market is supposed to work. The fact that dealers stepped away is a problem. The liquidity disappeared is a problem. But beyond those things, there are other things too. For example, algorithms can misfire. Our treasuries trading platforms can stop working. These things have all happened and they're happening with frequencies that shouldn't be that frequent for treasuries. And that really is where some of these risks are building. So, so Yesha, I, it, it sounds like you're laying much, if not all of the blame at the feet of high frequency trading. And I guess, um, can you, so my very simplistic understanding is that, you know, so it's high frequency trading can be good. It, it helps markets quickly incorporate price information and, you know, maybe at the margins, there's some question about whether too much of that could be a bad thing by uh, reducing the incentives for sort of fundamental investors to dig up new information. You know, you can't really exploit it anymore in the same way you used to. But it sounds like you're saying something quite different. You're saying that there's something pathological about the algorithms themselves. Am I understanding that right? And if so, why doesn't the market just fix that problem? You know, I think I think it's I think it's a really interesting question. Now, firstly, um, I'm I'm not blaming HFTs in particular. Um, the bank dealers too that intermediate treasuries trading in the in the case of liquidity risks and liquidity uh, problems, they have disappeared too, 
right? So in February 2021, the government uh, issued more debt. It was a really crap auction. It was a really, really crap auction. No one wanted to buy the U.S. debt. So um, there was a there was a bit of a disaster. And in that situation, you know, primary dealers and others just left. They stopped trading. Same thing in March last year, the primary dealers and HFTs, they stopped trading, right? So it's across the board. There is nothing here compelling dealers like primary dealers and HFTs who operate in this very important market to stay on the market in times of trouble, right? There's nothing requiring them to say, we will continue to make markets and provide liquidity even when um, the, the crap is hitting the fan. There's nothing requiring that. And so liquidity in this market is very tenuous, it's fragile, it's potentially extremely fragile. And that's and that's a real problem here. Um, to come, come into your question about HFT, what HFT has done over this last you know, couple, you know, decade and a half is bring enormous liquidity, bring efficiency, bring price information, bring technology, and, and all sorts of improvements um, into the marketplace. There's no question about that. But as with all things electronic, like we're talking on Zoom, um, the internet can fail. Um, our our screen screens may blur away. We can have all you know we can have all sorts of problems, all sorts of conniptions that can happen in this simple um, operational use of technologies that are very fast, very sophisticated, very complicated. In the case of the equity markets, derivative markets, for example. A lot of research and work and rulemaking has gone into dealing with some of the risks that are created by using extremely powerful algorithms for complex trading. So for example, we have rules that require traders to test their algorithms, to test their systems that they're using, to make sure that the, the, the trading systems that they bring to the floor are robust enough to not cause a huge problem and disaster when they come into the marketplace. Is that a guarantee? No, but it's at least a test and force traders to bear a cost for using the systems that they're using. Unfortunately, in treasuries, no such review, no such rulemaking has happened. So it's much cheaper for algo traders, for the primary dealers that, you're, that are using algorithms to trade, for them to use algorithms, they haven't necessarily invested in testing. Um, for them to not go through that review process, for them not to undertake that kind of, uh, to, 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 to internalize those kinds of costs. So the problem really is that we're in a space which is not, not well-regulated, where regulatory updating has not happened to deal with the evolving risks in the marketplace. And so the treasury market is exposed in a very basic way. So Yesha, um... I didn't interrupt this time, I think. Please At least I waited, I waited I for your you. voice to drop. And then I was like, okay, now I can talk. <laughs> so, um, but if I were to boil down uh, sort of your concerns uh, in a simplistic fashion, it, it is that you're telling us that the US treasury market needs special protection. It is a market where people get very traumatized if they don't have this uh, final frontier to protect them. And so uh, as I read 
what you're saying, that this need for regulation, the need for oversight of these uh, algorithms, the need to make sure things are going to work, the, the need to make sure that people don't run away from the market when they uh, see big risks on the horizon, like uh, in March of 2020, which is you know when COVID really hit, at least it hit in the minds of uh, US markets. This just seems to be asking for a subsidy for this one market. And we don't usually regulate government debt markets, and we certainly don't subsidize uh, the babies who are trading in this market. I, I don't understand. Why do I care? This is, I mean, people erroneously think it's risk-free, so that's on them. People have bad algorithms that screw them up and their customers. Well, that's on them. The market should work. This is a really thick market, as you've described. Why don't we just depend on market forces? The claim, and I think you you do explicate this in your article, so this is just a failure of um, my memory. But maybe you can explain. The claim has to be that there, there are these huge externalities here that we're so worried about the babies trading in this market that we need to protect them. Whereas, you know, when we have a sudden stop to Mexican debt in March of 2020, we don't care about that. I, I don't, I don't get it. Yeah. I mean, the, you know, the, 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 the they're problem, all babies. They're all babies. Everyone's a baby. Um, You know, the, the big, the big thing that we have done over this last I don't know, decade and a half, maybe, or at least decade, is that we rely on treasuries for so much um, in our regulatory system, right? But maybe the, we I, shouldn't. Maybe we shouldn't, but we are, you know, maybe we shouldn't, of course. Like, and, you know, I have a, I have a separate paper uh, with Padeep Yadav, uh, who does happen to, 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 to be related to me um, as my father. Yeah, but anyway, I have another complaint. Could you stop writing so many papers? It no, I really don't write that many. Really I really unproductive. I'm, I'm very stop lazy. working so much. <laughs> I'm you no know, coming from you. Me too. Like uh, Mr. SSR and download, please. Um, you know, every single time I look, there's a new paper by you in multiple different fields. So I will. Um, I am the lazy one. Um, but you know, we are relying on treasuries across the board and as the safe asset that banks, hedge funds, mutual funds, individual investors across the board need to keep as part of their portfolios to stop disaster from affecting them, right? So we have uh, uh, our, our capital buffers are required to be populated uh, for certain institutions by treasuries because they are supposed to be so liquid um, and so stable in their value. In addition, obviously, as you know me too more than anyone, our government parked their foreign reserves in U.S. treasuries, right, as a way to maintain um, a, 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 a reserve of very stable, um, reliable value for their own assets, right? And this is why treasuries matter, right? And this is why liquidity in U.S. treasuries matters enormously, that investors financial stability, relevant institutions, and furthermore, having uh, nation states rely on U.S. treasuries means that our infrastructure here needs to be robust to allow panic selling, if the case may be, panic buying, if the case may be, for these instruments above and others, um, above far above 
um, that of other countries' debts. For example, you know, you mentioned El Salvador, Mexico, and others. Right. So that is the onus that we have on treasuries. And that's why the infrastructure that we use to trade them needs to be protected in a way um, that reflects the importance of this asset. Now, in order to do that, I think we need to undergo, at least need to think about the regulatory structures that exist within this marketplace. And so what my work here is trying to do is really bring um, some um, some um, argument that the regulatory structure that we have put in place with treasuries is simply not good enough and that places treasuries in a position whereby they are more fragile than we realize, at least in their trading. And that creates a danger for us going forward that maybe treasuries don't operate as the safest asset anymore, potentially imperiling and jeopardizing our ability to raise money in the future. All right. That was great. We should take a break now and then maybe we'll move on to some of Yesha's other wonderful work. So Yesha, can we switch gears? I wanted to ask you about a different aspect of your work having to do with debt buybacks. And um, again, my question might be kind of simplistic because I've so the, the concern that you raise, as I understand it, is that in at least some cases, there's a risk of kind of issuer side opportunism with buybacks because there might be information asymmetries that the, the issuer is capitalizing on to buy back its securities at too low of a price. And, and I guess I have um, I have a, a general question and then maybe one, one that's a little bit more specific. The general question is just uh, to get you to elaborate a little bit on that concern. The more specific question is, so why isn't this problem too one that we should just rely on contracts to solve in the sense that the, the bond contract can contain provisions limiting the issuer's right to buy securities back, regulating how much information it's got to supply and so forth. I mean, thinking of sovereign bonds, those kinds of provisions are quite routinely included in the contract, describing the circumstances when the, the government can and can't do a buyback. And just as an aside, I think from the literature, the answer to that question ought to be something like, from the government's perspective, never. Um, buybacks often seem counterproductive. But anyway, the contract deals with it. So what's the problem and why doesn't the contract deal with it in the context that you're concerned with? Yeah, thanks so much for asking that, Mark. I mean, this the, the, the debt buybacks problem is again, you know, one that doesn't get much attention for the, for the three of us here who love debt, who do debt, right? This seems like, you know, this seems like, why aren't we talking about this? But as you know, the bigger problem here is that the debt markets tend to lack transparency. Um, they have generally been assumed to be a market in which the investors are super sophisticated and therefore the contractual mechanisms that we put in place are the right ones, are the ones that will be sufficiently protective for the investors to safeguard their um, interests and to safeguard their bottom lines. And so why do we bother worrying about potential opportunism between folks that are coming at this um, from um, arm's length and with expertise and experience. Um, 
I think that the debt buybacks reveals that debt markets are vulnerable to the traditional kinds of opportunism we've seen in other kinds of markets and that investors are in fact um, not as motivated to act in their interests as they should be. So the problem here is that we have uh, companies buying back debt they use, there are two ways of doing so. One in the open market, they just go ahead and buy back their own, uh, a certain amount of their own debt in the marketplace, like any other investor. Um, this is not transparent at all. No disclosure is needed um, besides something in the annual report down the line. So no one really knows that this has happened until well after the fact. Um, this can be done by stealth. In the case of a tender offer that's much more public, uh, the company goes out into the marketplace and does a tender offer to buy back a whole bunch of its debt, an entire issue if it wants, as a way to relieve the, bur the, the burden on its balance sheet. That, of course, is much more public. We know the price that we're still coming at, but there's still some problems here. Investors can time the tender offer to a moment in which they may know that perhaps their future is going to be brighter than what the market thinks it is. Um, furthermore, in addition to the, uh, the the timing issue, tender offer requirements don't really, for debt, don't require a whole bunch of disclosure, right? There's no need to give a whole bunch of disclosure to investors. And finally, as you know, there's no fiduciary duty protecting bondholders. So there's nothing compelling the managers to give a whole bunch of disclosure to investors. And so what that means is that investors are systematically at a disadvantage, right? They're at an, an informational disadvantage where they don't have a whole bunch of disclosure that folks in the equity markets take for granted. There's no fiduciary duty protecting them. And so bondholders have to research, investigate, understand exactly what their entitlements are. And yeah, yeah, sure, can I, I, sure. I, So this, this all makes sense to me, but unlike the, the discussion of treasury markets where it's easy for me to see the kind of externalities created by this problem. I mean, if there's the treasury market isn't deep and liquid, then that can cause all kinds of havoc. But all of the, the concerns that you're describing seem to be costs that are kind of internalized by the bondholders, which I would think is the kind of classic setting where we should just say, the hell with you, like get buy a better contract. And if you don't buy a better contract, why are we worried about this? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit more, um, I'm a little bit more uh, coddly and, and smothering of the bondholders. I think what's happened over the last, uh, you know, last couple of, uh, at least the last decade, is the fact that bond institutions, I mean, yes, there are institutions, but they're representing the savings of everyday normal people. Um, furthermore, many of these uh, bond institutions, the bond funds that we're seeing, have the, sim the same problems that we've seen in the case of equities and others, which is that they tend to be extremely passive. And as Me, Me Too is, has written about uh, with, with Marcel and others, um, bond, bondholders can be extremely um, apathetic, passive, lazy, um, inattentive uh, about being able to reinforce their rights. Now, in the case of the remedy, um, I'm all for having better contracts here, right? I completely agree with you that we can rely on a contractual remedy to compel disclosure, uh, to require a more fulsome discussion, to help coordination if, if, between bondholders should that, should that be possible. I'm all for that. But we come to, to the problem that Me Too and Marcel and have written about, which is the enforcement of that contract. I worry about that, right? As we see in the case of 
um, just bond indentures generally, they have historically suffered, as you both know, from this amazing under-enforcement problem. Um, we have not seen them be enforced with the kind of rigor and vigor that one might expect and assume of institutional investors. And the kind of in enforcement that we have seen, um, as um, uh, Marcel Kahan and Rock have written about, has been quite opportunistic, right? Has been to find specific um, technical defaults and litigate to scare the hell out of issuers. That Yesha, is um, sorry, I can't resist uh, interrupting it. again. Go sorry. So I just I want to come back uh, to an aspect of Mark's question that you know that we Mark and I were inspired by reading your article uh, to look. At. And that is, after we read your bond buybacks article, and I want to reiterate, you should not write so much because it embarrasses the rest of us, <laughs> but um, we uh, decided to, because we were curious, and we decided to go and look at a little bit of the history of uh, buyback provisions. And of course, we looked at uh, sovereign debt contracts, since that's what we study primarily. And as a historical matter, during the Latin American debt crisis, there were a number of press articles that talked about how outrageous it was that some countries, uh, I think Brazil was one, uh, maybe Mexico did uh, some of these, uh, and uh, Peru and Chile might have done a couple, had done these sort of underhanded, uh, sneaky buybacks of their debt at very low prices on the market, uh, including with accusations that uh, these countries had uh, issued bad information about their future prospects to the market and then taken advantage of that to do buybacks. And what Mark and I were told by the senior lawyers in the field uh, was that look at the bond contracts and it'll be consistent with what Yesha says and you will see uh, restrictions on buybacks. So we looked at the data and the data, including the data immediately after the Latin American debt crisis suggested precisely the opposite. The bond buyback provisions said, you may buy back anytime and at any price that you wish and did not have any requirements uh, for disclosure. So, I mean, I, I agree that bond investors are sleepy, inattentive, uh, and mostly sort of useless about knowing what contract provisions are, are there. But this is a uniform provision that was put in place after claims of a big problem. And it seems really to cut in the other direction. Now, you may tell me, and you probably will, that you know sovereign debt is just an obscure market and maybe corporate debt, the, the, the buyback is much, a much bigger problem. But I just worry that, that this, this kind of contract provision is going, cutting precisely in the opposite direction, despite those press accounts of how horrible this was. And certainly in the economics literature, where, where there's a classic Bulow and Rogoff paper from the 1980s on, and all of that, they take the perspective that 
you know, buybacks are really stupid for an issuer to do because investors are smarter than the issuers and the issuers always lose. Yeah, I mean, I I love your writings um, on on this and you had, a, I think, a great credit slips blog post on it. Um, and the it, it, this, this is what boggles the mind for me, which is I do not understand how that contractual um, innovation came into the sovereign bond contract after these problems. So, you know, we have seen sovereign bond contracts respond in the case of CACs, for example, um, to come up with different wording. And, and, and you, you have both, you know, you guys have written extensively on this and, and know a great deal about this. I am flummoxed as to why this kind of language appeared in the sovereign bond contract, unless the explanation is something to do with sovereign power. Right. Um, and um, the lack of investor power vis-a-vis -vis the sovereign in these contexts. That is really the only thing that I can think of. But I think we can do better in the corporate bond market. So I think the corporate bond markets, as, as you've written about me, too, in the case of Cash America, for example, um, that the, 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 the sovereign bond markets can innovate on contracts if the investors are really, really pushed to do so. And if the investors see um, that there's a real problem that is diminishing their interests and their ability to recoup a payment. Um, and I think there's a lot on the line here. Um, in the case of uh, redemptions, we know that, um, that you know, investors do care. Uh, they have cared about make whole premia. They've cared about call options that are not properly paid. So they do seem to care. So I, I cannot see why the corporate bond market cannot come up with decent wording that at least requires a, a minimum amount of disclosure in the case of debt buybacks for the company to explain why it's doing it uh, on what terms and any particular non-public information the company should share in those cases. So I'm, I'm more bullish about the corporate bond market given Cash America uh, potentially. At the same time, we don't get away from the fact that the corporate bond market investors are still incredibly sleepy, as you said inattentive, potentially useless about enforcing their rights in most cases, unless they're really pushed to do so. I think maybe a useful way to, to follow on to that, Yesha, is to ask you if you can take a few minutes to talk about some brand new work that, um, that you uh, let us know about a bit before the, the episode. So, um, one of the things you're thinking about now um, is this broader question about how we can rely and whether we can rely on contract reform as a solution to some of the woes of the bond market. And so um, you were positing in this new article something of a tension between the need to create tradable liquid instruments and the reliance on contracts as a reform tool. And so can you give us a little bit more background on this new project? And then we can um, maybe squeeze in one or two more questions before we let you go. Wonderful, thank you, Mark. Um, so this is new work with uh, Jonathan Brogard at Utah. He's a professor of finance at Utah. Um, and for whatever reason, I seem to feel pretty sorry for bondholders. And that's kind of, uh, being my starting point and for the bond market as a whole. So Jonathan is an expert in market microstructure um, and market structure. And so what we thought was interesting uh, for us was to see this tension between 
market structure, the ability to trade an instrument versus the optimal uh, ways in which that instrument is supposed to reduce agency costs in its in its operation. So the traditional account in bondholder literature is that bondholders are sophisticated. They should be able to protect themselves through the bond terms, as we've just discussed, which means that they should be undertaking solid debt governance, uh, putting in terms and conditions in that indenture to protect themselves. But what Jonathan and I are arguing, or, or at least positing his intention, um, what we're saying here is that the more the bondholders work to do this, to customize a contract, to be really diligent about debt governance, to put in all sorts of different cool provisions to protect themselves and make the bond unique and protective for themselves, that that can cause the bond to become less tradable in the marketplace, cause the bond to become less liquid. And the reason for that is that the bond becomes less standard. It's harder to trade. It becomes more opaque. Um, it becomes less comparable with that of its peers. Um, and that can cause reductions in the ability of that bond to be as liquid as investors might want it to be. So what we suggest here is that bondholders are basically in a bit of a bit, bit of a bind, really. They are they're caught between two crappy stools. Either they protect themselves through the contractual mechanism, which is their primary force of protection, or they lose the ability to trade an instrument. And in the marketplace in which we really value trading as we do, um, that can be a bit of a cost. So for us, we suggest that that has all sorts of follow-on implications for agency costs of debt, whereby the bondholders are unable to do the kind of job we might want them to do to reduce the agency costs of debt. So Yesha, uh, we have already taken up way too much of your time, but I, I'm gonna ask, Another question, but I promise this will be my last. And uh, maybe Mark will have another one, but otherwise, we, Liana will get upset with us if we don't end on time. But the, the, the question I have, given this very interesting new article uh, that you guys have um, put together, it has to do with how your concerns have changed or evolved as a function of changes in the bond market. And again, uh, with apologies that I really only know about the sovereign debt market. In the sovereign debt market, between say the mid 1990s and today, we've seen a significant evolution in terms of which players take an active role in governance. So in the period between the mid 1990s and going maybe at least all the way till 2010, most of the investors in sovereign bonds were these big institutions who were very passive. And they, at this earliest sign of trouble, they exited the market. And that gave room for a handful of small aggressive hedge funds to play what some might describe as disciplinary role, but others would describe as a very destructive role in terms of holding up uh, restructurings in a, in a way that hurt the bondholder class as a whole. But that's a thing of the past. If, if we look at modern restructurings, including the ones that are going on now, like 
Lebanon or Zambia or even Mozambique, we see that the big bond players here are institutions like Franklin Templeton or even Fidelity. And we saw, saw them, uh, actually, I, I should add Argentina's recent restructuring uh, to the mix. And they have a lot of muscle and they exercise this muscle. And so now in, in this modern context, it seems to me, at least at first cut, difficult to feel all that sympathetic to the bondholders for not negotiating the right contracts because institutions like Frankel Templeton, they're there at the front end. Now they're there at the back end too. And they're really doing very well in terms of the returns on their assets. So I'm not sure if this is happening in the corporate debt market uh, in terms of this, this sort of the marginal aggressive activist players are being moved out, but curious as to what you guys uh, think about these changes in market structure. See, I think I said something about market. <laughs> um, you certainly did. Um, I think there's a larger question that we need to ask, which is about the role of debt in discipline. Um, and the debt markets today have become, as you know, both of you guys are are the 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 experts here. The debt markets have become gargantuan um, over this last. Uh, year, we have seen record corporate borrowing. So I think it's something like $1.7 trillion was borrowed last year. That's an almost 60% rise over 2019. Um, today's corporate debt market, I think, is something like $10.7 trillion. So this is, this is not small change. It's a massive market, tons and tons of borrowing post-COVID. Um, companies' balance sheets may be over-leveraged, uh, given the amount of borrowing that they have undertaken. And this is particularly the case for companies that may not have the kind of fundamentals needed uh, to potentially pay off their debt in the future. Now, we have, may have an amazing economic recovery, and none of this may matter. But fundamentally, if we want to imagine a, a less than optimistic uh, situation, we have a lot of leveraged companies in the market today. So the big question is, what role can debt play? To discipline these companies and how can we protect bondholders and others or if you know how can bondholders protect themselves um, against being systematically exposed to default risk going forward um so i think for for me i am very much a believer that debt can be a source of real discipline in reducing agency costs and as a matter of simple governance as a matter of simple debt discipline i hope we can do what we can what we need to do to enable that discipline to happen most purposefully and meaningfully. And right now I think that's missing. So in this article with Jonathan, what we're saying is that debt holders are caught in a trap between their ability to trade the debt and their ability to tailor the debt. And that puts debt discipline at a disadvantage. Um, based off of your work, Me Too, um, you know, we're, we're also concerned about enforcement here. And so thinking about ways in which the contract can be optimized for enforcement. And the reason why we are concerned is simply because quite apart from the, you know, I don't want to say moral aspect, but quite apart from the aspect that some investors don't need protecting or some investors should do it themselves. I do believe we should have proper nudges in the market that incentivize these actors to do what they need to do to protect themselves and to discipline the companies that are taking on the debt. 
And so having good trading can potentially uh, create that threat of exit that my, Franklin Templeton and others may use to scare an issuer into behaving itself, can scare a manager into behaving themselves. So that really is our goal here. Um, the, the, the market structure changes that you mentioned with respect to investors are also happening in the corporate debt market. So we have some huge corporate investors, debt investors in the marketplace today. We obviously have the, the usual BlackRock, PIMCO, MetLife, and others. Um, but the enforcement seems to be happening at the level, as you mentioned, of hedge funds, opportunistic hedge funds um, that are using technical defaults to be able to create discipline. Now, the problem with these hedge funds is that this is not potentially doing meaningful debt governance. This is simply opportunistic behavior that's designed to create quick payouts for the hedge funds rather than engage with a company to be able to undertake debt discipline in a more meaningful way. Um, and really for Jonathan and I, the, the, the goal is to think about debt as a more substantive force in corporate governance, which is not being used when there's a tension with liquidity. Well, Yesha, thank you so much for coming on today. We had a long list of things that we wanted to, to talk with you about um, that we didn't spend a lot of time on. We wanted to ask questions about financial markets regulation, um, some questions about CDS markets, but all that means is that we're going to have to ask you to come back um, maybe multiple times if, if we can do that. But um, I have to say that nerding out with you guys and getting to spend time with you guys, I would do any day of the week and any point in the day. I'm not a morning person, but I'm waking up before noon. So this is, you guys are very, very special indeed. Well, Thank you so much for having we me. We are honored that you are uh, to get you out of bed before noon. Somehow yes. I suspect that's- During a pandemic. That, yeah, yeah. But um, whether that's true or not, um, we're super thrilled <laughs> that, you could, that you could join us and uh, look forward to having you again soon. Thank you so much for